Welcome to the Global Wellness HQ family of podcasts. We are your international headquarters for resources and ideas and insight in relation to the nine elements of holistic wellness. Join us as we interview local and international wellness experts and learn how you can implement and improve one element or dimension of wellness at a time. Our experts will share their practical tips on wellness in one of these core areas. Emotional, intellectual, occupational, physical, environmental, financial, spiritual, social, or habitual. We created our family of podcasts as a resource for anyone who is looking to integrate the nine elements of holistic wellness into their daily lives. Welcome to the show. The Global Wellness HQ family of podcasts is proudly sponsored by the Global Wellness HQ community. It's an online membership group where we meet, we share ideas, we share insights, and we all work together and help one another discover our own personal wellness journeys. If you'd like to join us, you can easily click the link below or scan the QR code, and we love hearing your stories, so we hope to see you in the community. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm excited today to have Jeff Cullen with us. Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, who you work with, and what you do for your clients? All right. Well, I'm very pleased to be here, Jeff. Good to see you again. So my name is Jeff Cullen, and I am the owner of a management consulting firm that operates under the name Basecamp 4 uh, and has all sorts of allusions to uh, mountain climbing and um, uh, Everest um, base camp being the last safe refuge before you attempt the summit. And so there's, a, you know, it's, it's very uh, uh, allegorical to a lot of what my clients go through. So my clients, generally, I work exclusively with private sector companies, uh, the owners and leadership teams. So companies anywhere from like 10 to 100 employees is the sweet spot. And in terms of what I do, really, there's two problems that I solve. One is overcoming stalled growth. Uh, which is a problem that owners are often aware of. And the other problem is helping them to secure a successful exit or transition when the time is right, or unfortunately, when conditions require. And that's a problem that most owners are not aware of. So a lot of what I'm doing is trying to raise awareness uh, around that second problem that a lot of people just um, get caught unaware and, and surprised, and, and that's not a good situation. Now, let, let's kind of dive into that particular piece, because I, I think a lot of business owners are, in fact, surprised. And, and I think there's a lot of myths and misconceptions around, you know, what can happen to a business, right. um, you know, and unfortunately, what I hear a lot is, oh, well, I guess I'll just close the doors. So, um, yeah, you know. There's right. a lot of statistics around that. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, what are some exit options that maybe people haven't considered? And sure. let's talk about sort of the relative timelines, because, again, I think a lot of people think, oh, when I'm ready to retire, I'll just close the doors or or I'll list it for sale and I'll sell it overnight. Right, um, right. So tell me a little bit about some options that people should be considering. Sure. Well, let's let's talk timeline first of all. Let's let's set the stage. So, uh, a lot of the brokers that I have in my network are pretty clear in saying that even once you pull the trigger and decide to try and either sell or or transition the business, it's about a nine 
nine to 12 to sometimes 18 month process. So that's after you've decided it's actually time to try to go. What I typically tell clients and people in, in the exit planning game, uh, it's actually be three to five years before that decision point is sort of the sweet spot. And honestly, the sooner that you begin to think exit, um, even maybe the day after you established a company, just having that at the back of your head um, and, and on the forefront actually creates a lot of value. So, you know, the best time, like they say, is uh, three to five years before you want to exit. The second best time, if you haven't started, is like right now. I love that. And I think that's, um, you know, I hear this advice a lot. And and as an accountant, um, my advice was the day you decide to launch your venture, whatever it is, um, know what your exit strategy is, because right. that day is when you have, you know, when you're planning to launch your baby, you need to know what it's going to look like in five years, 10 years. You know, if your exit strategy isn't planned out, you end up reacting. Whereas if you can start the process, you know, literally the day before you launch, you have so many more options. So let's, let's talk about some of the options that aren't necessarily available. And, you know, as an example, I hear a lot of people, they either, sell and and it's urgent because either they're right. sick or they're tired or they're sick and tired um, <laughs> your options there are relatively limited you know you either uh, shut the doors or you hope for the best that's right or yeah maybe you can you know sell the assets and, and liquidate but and i've i've worked with a lot of clients through the business development bank years ago when exit planning was kind of on the radar and it sort of went away for a while but now it's back uh, and I used to refer to those, I refer to those now as late stage exits, which like you say, uh, something has happened, it could be a health thing, or or maybe they're just, they're just burned out and they've had enough. And at that point, your options are pretty limited. So, you know, we saw a lot of attempts to sell to employees, which certainly is a viable option, um, if it's done correctly. And if it's done, again, with some forethought, um, you know, uh, the funny thing is no owner has ever said, oh, my employees aren't interested in buying when they talk about it around the water cooler. You know, you guys think you want to buy into the business someday? And most people go, yeah, absolutely. But when you sit down as a consultant and start walking through that process and then the reality of, of you know, personal guarantees and there's no backstop, you know, to go from the person who basically gets paid, whether the business does well or not, to well, suddenly your money's on on the table is a huge shift. So often employees who maybe said with great enthusiasm, not knowing what they were getting into, that they bought, they want, you know, they'd buy out. Uh, once the brass tax hit, you know, they're not nearly as interested. The other problem with the employee sale is most of them don't have that kind of money, right? So if an owner wants to harvest significant value and walk away with, you know, cash in their pocket, selling to employees, again, unless it's been set up you know, way ahead of time uh, is difficult. It's obvious. Often they wind up financing that purchase, you know, and, and they're going to remain attached to the business for, you know, three, five, 10 years. And with their earnings their, or their their uh, chances of getting the money out of the business kind of at risk, right? Because if the business yeah. starts to fail, um, you're not going to get paid. So that's an option. Transition to family. And again, that's another area where a lot of owners that I've worked with are 100% convinced that their kids are going to, you know, knock themselves out and step, you know, come into the business. 
uh, or stay with the business. And sometimes that happens. It has its own challenges, but a lot of times, uh, particularly, you know, in the last 20 years where it's a different work-life expectancy. And and I think kids have seen their, their parents knock themselves out and work so hard. And a lot of them are like, no, thanks. You know, I'm not interested. So there again, if that's been your uh, ace in the hole and you expect that that's what's going to happen, but you haven't really had those conversations, honestly, ahead of time, um, A, it's disappointing because now that option is off the table. And it usually raises all kinds of interfamily uh, issues, right? Again, at, at the 11th hour, because you know people are not usually pleased when their kids tell them, there's no way, I wouldn't touch that business with a 10-foot pole, dad. You know, and of course, dad, that's been his whole life, or or mom, and now suddenly, you know, that raises a lot of issues. That again, had we begun to have that conversation 10 years ahead, and in fact, it's funny because we say for family businesses, it's not three to five, it's probably 10 is more the timeline um, to at least start thinking about it and putting those ideas on the table. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I remember I was probably 12 years old when my dad said, you know, I'm building this farm so you one day can take it over. And I went, I don't want to be a farmer. <laughs> and it, one, it's one day, son, all of this will be yours. And you're like, please no. <laughs> yeah, right. Again, I have nothing wrong with with those who choose to follow in their parents' footsteps. But even for me, I'd seen how hard my dad worked. I'd seen, you know, the ebbs and flows of, you know, here's what, um, you know, a good year looks like. Here's what a bad year looks like. And I went, you know, th this is not for me. I, I right. want, you know, I wanted to go to college. I wanted to learn things. I wanted to become a professional. And I think that's the aha moment when a lot of people they don't recognize that what do you mean you're not going to go into this yeah and wouldn't it be nice to know today rather than you know the, the day you're on your beth deathbed saying oh congratulations junior the family business is yours and um no thank you <laughs> that's right junior junior where'd you go <laughs> hello <laughs> so other options uh, let's start with the third-party buyer option. And actually, you know, in, in what I do, I tend to like that one kind of as the planning tool because usually that's where you're going to get the most value, but also where the business has to be uh, positioned, you know, the best, right? Because a, a sophisticated buyer is going to come in, they're going to do due diligence, they're going to poke around, they're really going to take a look at this thing. And if your business has been positioned and and systematized and matured to where it would be attractive to a sophisticated third-party buyer then you're pretty good shape whatever other option you choose so that to me is kind of the you know it's it's like new york new york if you can make it there you know you can make it pretty much anywhere right um, so that's certainly a um a pretty powerful option now the third party could be a totally a stranger it could be a vendor it could be a client it could be a competitor right so there's all these avenues that sometimes owners don't think about where um you know there may be some value strategic value to someone who has historically been a competitor or who does the same thing in a different geographic region and suddenly your business you know has value in terms of the business itself but even more value 
if they are looking to expand, you know, into your part of the country and they see that your business is that, that, um, you know, a tip of the spear kind of thing. Right. So often that might be, you know, trading at a much higher multiple because they see value beyond like the day-to-day -day cash flow and profitability. So keeping those options in mind um, is pretty critical. I love that. And I think the strategic acquisition, you know, if if I can be really blunt, if you don't think your business has value to someone else, why are you trying to sell it to someone else? Right. Uh, I, I think that the strategic buyer is the one that gets missed the most because mm -hmm. first of all, if it's if it's a direct competitor, you know, maybe you're not comfortable going to them and and we'll you know, we'll talk about the logistics of it, but right. you know if you can find an out of territory competitor that would love to be in your territory, um, you know, it's a kind of final way of sticking it to your local competitor, if you will. But... <laughs> now, why do you think that one gets missed so much? I mean, and, and totally, I get this as a tangent question and, and I didn't give you a heads up yeah. on this, but I, I feel it's an important one. Uh, that's a really good question. I, I suspect there's a, probably a couple of reasons. Um, maybe the first one is be similar to why they don't plan to exit at all. It requires a certain amount of, of heads up, you know, paying attention to the environment. And a lot of owners, I mean, it's their, you know, it's their bread and butter. So, you know, 90%, hundred percent of their time is spent on what's right in front of them which of course is part of the whole process of maturing it. So you get them to a place where they have enough capacity now to, to be able to look around. So I think part of it, they just don't, they don't look around. Uh, and I think it's a complicated or it's deemed to be complicated and maybe a little risky. Uh, so maybe those that, that are uh, aware of it um, shy away from it. And then I think the other part is that a lot of them maybe have gone through the process or maybe they've heard someone and, you know, heard the horror stories of someone coming in and, and, you know, peeking under the skirt and what you think is worth, you know, $10 million, uh, a buyer comes in and, and just beats the snot out of it and goes, yeah, this is worth $2 million. Right. And, and all of that effort. And also I think the emotional investment. So that's one thing that, that we often uh, also talk about is, there's really three things you've got to prepare. Yes, the business to optimize its value to an external buyer, your personal financial affairs, you know, be that estate planning, tax planning. But then the other leg of, you know, what we call the three-legged stool is the whole emotional personal side of it, right? Um, because people, I think, there too have misconceptions where it'll be like, oh yeah, you know, it's going to be fine. I'm going to get a big check and then I'm going to stick around the house. I'm going to spend time with my wife. I'm going to golf. And the reality is something like 75% of the owners who managed to, who actually managed to exit, because a lot of them don't still have remorse within 12 months. And usually it's tied to things like purpose, uh, loss of identity. And they just, they haven't prepared for that, that big question. Like, who are you going to be the day after you sell your business? And if you spend 25 or 30 years as the boss you know, and, and I say something happens and it happens. And now you're at home, you know, with your spouse and you're like, you know, 
bring me a sandwich. And they're like, who the hell do you think you are, right? What are you going to do today? Where are you going today? That's, that's a hint, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, again, with some forethought, you know, there's so many opportunities that I think a lot of owners have either foregone. Maybe it's a dream they had when they were younger. And now they spent so much time, you know, immersed in, in just surviving that this is an opportunity now to reconnect to some of that. It could be anything from, you know, maybe you want to mentor other business owners. Maybe you want to become an angel investor. Maybe you want to buy a racehorse. You know, it doesn't matter what the it is. Uh, volunteer, uh, you know, get involved with your church. But again, they're so tapped into the day-to-day. -day. And then honestly, the sales process does consume a lot of focus that a lot of them forget to think about that. Great, I got my big check. And yeah, the first three months, I'm sure, are a lot of fun. You know, I have a, a lawyer friend who says it's, you know, time in your pajamas on the couch, right? And you're like, woohoo, you know? <laughs> but if you're the kind of person who's been a successful entrepreneur, and you know, you and I both are that, and we know tons of people, right? You're curious, you're driven, you're you're always looking for the next thing. Um, very unlikely that this sort of placid life of, you know, uh, uh, stately lordship is going to be satisfying for more than a, a short period of time, right? Yeah, and, and I think that's you know the number one thing that people don't talk about is that seller's remorse. I mean, we all hear about buyer's remorse. Um, if you don't have a plan for your life, um, you're going to be wishing you were back in your business. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and, totally. and I know a lot of entrepreneurs and, and you, you've probably met a few too, that, you know, their entire life, their entire who I am, what I do, how I show up in the world is tied to that identity at the, at the job. Right. Um, I know a lot that if you took that identity away, whether by choice or, you know, health issues or anything, yeah. um, they really struggle with who am I? Yeah. Sometimes they don't like the answer when they figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's transition slightly here. Sure. Um, you know, I, I know you as a management consultant, you've probably got a lot of great advice in your world, but I'm going to ask you. What is the best business advice you've ever received Ooh. and how did it impact you and your business? Yeah, I thought about that because you you were kind enough to send some some preparatory questions. Uh, so I gave it a lot of thought. I've obviously like like a lot of people have gotten lots of different advice over the years, but here's one that I really like and this I learned this early on from a mentor and uh, who was a manager when I just got into the engineering business and he said to me one day, because um, we were having a lot of problems with turnover. It was a small office. It was sort of very sink or swim. One day he said, you know, there's two. There's, there's only two kinds of people in the world. He says, there's, there's the bushwhackers and there's the road takers. And the bushwhackers are the people who, you know, they say, show me where you want me to go and, and hand me a machete and then get out of my way. And then the road takers are the people who need the map, you know, from point to point and tell me what to do next. And his name was Tom. And Tom said, what you got to do is you got to figure out what kind of person you are, number one. And then you it's really important to figure out what the other people that you're dealing with, whether it be your boss or your subordinates or anybody that you're dealing with, what kind of person are they? And then, you know, manage them or manage that relationship in accordance. Because like you said, the problem, we kept handing machetes to, you know, road takers. 
and they kept dropping the machete and we just kept picking it up and handing it back to them never getting the message that this is not going to work that's just not how this individual is is wired and uh, i think that was very very valuable because i've seen it play out in a lot of different uh scenarios um yeah so that that's that's my number one and I love the simplicity of that. I mean, you know, just if you think about literally, if somebody needs a map and you hand them a machete, they're going to be really confused. But if they need a machete and you hand them a map, they're going to be confused and annoyed. Like it's, it's you know, right. knowing who you are, but also who you're you're dealing with, because, yeah, they're the trailblazers. They just, you know, tell me where you want me to get to and, and I'll... Right tell you how to get there um you know in any business if you have one without the other um, you're going to struggle on some part of the path because you're also going to have clients that need either a machete or a roadmap and right. you know it, it's ironic that there are people out there they'll pay extra for the machete experience you know <laughs> you talked about base camp and and climbing mountains um, you know, there are people who will pay to have somebody literally carry them up the mountain so they can say, see, I climbed it. Right. And, and then there are people like, give me the map and just follow behind and make sure I didn't, you know, fall to my death or something. Yes, exactly. Yes. And that, that, now that's the kind of consulting I prefer to do. Uh, you know, I mean, I think every consultant at some point you get hired to like the do it for me thing. And, uh, you know, I've done a lot of that and it's not as satisfying as the client who says, First of all, that has the the uh, ability to recognize, uh, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm I'm able to admit that, but I want to learn. Like I don't want just someone to do it for me, um, you know. A lot of cases, so yeah, you know, let guide me, help me, get behind me, keep me accountable, keep pushing me, teach me. But at the end of that relationship, they should have mastered that that thing. Um, on their own right then they don't need you anymore and yeah maybe there's something else the next step but to me just having you know having someone do it for you doesn't really advance somebody um because as soon as that person leaves you're you're you know you're no further ahead right yeah yeah and i, I think that's where i have a lot of fun and I, you know i love teaching people how you know using your analogy i'd, I'd rather teach somebody how to climb then drag them up the hillside because if I teach them how to climb and I'm not there tomorrow, I know they're not going to fall to their death because right. well, Jeff made it look so easy. I'll, I'll just repeat this. Right. Yeah. That's the old give a man a fish uh, uh, parable, isn't it? <laughs> and, and that is one of my favorites. Again, I'd, I'd rather teach someone how to fish because then they know they, they can, can su succeed with or without me. And you know, I know there's a lot of consultants out there who are paranoid about that because, well, if I teach my clients my best strategy, I'm never going to be successful. I'll always be looking. Mm. But one of the things I find is people will pay to learn your strategy and they'll pay you to help them. And if you are really, truly serving, they'll always find a way to pay you. Right. Sure. Yeah. So let, well, let's. It's, yeah. That's a really good point. I like you know, I, I think, um, you know, it's either or, you know, either I teach you how to fish or I feed you a fish. But, you know, maybe there's there's a camaraderie because, 
you know, if I teach you how to catch fish all day long, um, and by the way, I seem to have a lot of fishing analogies, but you know, the reality is once you learn how to catch fish consistently, um, then you need to know what to do with that fish. Oh, well, I've got a cooking class for you, you know, fireside fish cooking or whatever. No, exactly. There's, uh, I mean, you know, I think the intent of most owners is they want to keep growing their business, whether that be in size or, or expanding into new markets. So there's never, uh, um, I think an end to what people can learn. And, and at the end of the day too, like you gotta be willing to, I think, call it, uh, it's like the baby, uh, the baby bird out of the nest, you know, when a client is at a point where they don't need you anymore, um, maybe they still think they need you, you know, that psychological comfort. I think it still behooves us as professionals to say, Hey, look, I think you've got this now, you know, like you run with this for a while and that doesn't preclude that after they've been on the plateau, maybe they, or the slower growth that they might hit that next curve. And I think they'll rec, you know, they'll recognize it's time to pick up the phone and and have you come back in Uh, as opposed to trying to keep somebody kind of dependent on you. That to me is not, you know, ideal. And uh, now I'm going to come back to base camp for a moment. And I love that analogy because I think, um, believe it or not, I I knew somebody who lived in a very flat part of the country. You can probably guess the prairies from it. And they were training to climb mountains. And I'm like, how do you climb, learn how to climb a mountain in Southern Saskatchewan? I mean, I'm from there. I can say this. And, you know, so let's talk about one of your favorite clients and don't name names here, but um, I'd like you to share an example of what they came to you looking for help with, um, what you accomplished together and what their life is like after having worked with Jeff. Mm. So, you know, what's it like when they get to base camp? <laughs> uh, wow. You're, you're taking me uh, a little bit by surprise with the pick an actual client. Let me, let me just think about that for a second. Or, or you can talk about a typical journey. So, yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the starting point. So sometimes the client will be kind of just way in over their head. And I've had a few that were in that situation, um, perhaps overextended themselves, either financially or uh, just in terms of commitment. And so... To be able to come in and first of all, just sort of identify the situation and and get everybody kind of in agreement, you know, like what's going on? Because oftentimes they just they have a sense of panic and they don't really know what's like. What is the problem? I know I have a problem. Um, so I had a client that was like that. It's a family business. Yeah, I can. I, this is a great story, and um, it was probably yeah. This was about the time of that economic downturn back in 08. And previous to that, they brought their sons into the business, you know, a couple of young guys, very ambitious. And uh, this was a, a hundred year old family business, a fourth generation, the sons were, and they had convinced the mom and dad to expand pretty significantly uh, and take a chance. They borrowed a bunch of money and they were going to develop um, a bunch of other projects and they bought some land and, you know, it was all great on paper. And of course, the banks were more than happy to lend them all this money. So hit the economic downturn, uh, all of these things are now stalled, and even their core business starts to struggle, right? They were profitable for a long time. And I remember the uh, CFO that was the mom said, 
I know we're losing money somewhere, but I have no idea where, right? So it was a gut feel. <laughs> and, you know, coming out of B school and whatnot, um, my I did finance and organizational behavior. So, you know, have a bunch of tools. And I was like, well, let me see. Like, let's look at your financials, right? I mean, you probably have a good feel for it at a, at a high level, but what's really going on? And it was the classic. Um, so they were a fab shop. They did a whole bunch of stuff. And it was like, here's our big bucket of revenue. And here's our big bucket of costs of, of goods sold, right? And everything is just in these two giant categories. And I'm like, well, but you've got like, you know, you do material sales and you've got like all of these different processes, products, or if you want, you know, for lack of a better term. And it's just this big mishmash, you know, you don't even know. So anyway, we spent a whole bunch of time going through all of their invoices and basically creating a model. And very quickly, we discovered that a couple of things, a, they had been making incredible margins on material sales for like decades. Right. And when that sort of quieted down, basically it was, you're no longer hiding the losses over here. And there's a whole bunch of stuff they were doing, including the dad had this one machine that he absolutely loved. And he kept saying, we just got to get more volume on this baby. Right. And when I ran some numbers, I felt like, uh, okay, well, you're running a gen set because uh, it takes too much power for the building that's in. You're actually losing about 30 cents on every dollar. So it's not more volume. You got to, you got to shut this thing down, man. Yeah. Um, so once we had that picture, then they could understand and they were able to then put basically a financial recovery plan because one of the big banks was putting a lot of pressure on these people and threatening them. And, you know, we're coming after your, your, your personal guarantees, you know, we're going to take everything. Right. And because they now understood we could put a plan in, in front of them and say, look, we're cutting this out. We're reducing costs on this, you know, and now here's this recovery. And amazingly enough, because I think we both know this, banks don't want your stuff, you know, like, like no. you're a big bank. They don't want your building. And, um, but if you can show them a plan, they go, oh, okay, you know, all right. So now let's do, we'll give you two years, interest only, no principal, you know, every three months we'll follow up and see if the plan is, and we basically got them out of that, that problem. Um, so that was a good one, you know, but again, it was just fundamental stuff that I could come in and teach the CFO. Cause after that, she's like, okay, from now on, you know, we're totally going to track our invoices differently. And I'm going to start creating, you know, files for every client and every project, and we'll know what's profitable and what's not. And it was like, you know, well, now it, you're in business, right? I, I know you're an engineer, so we can go down this tiny little tangent, <laughs> but you know, how do you improve your business if you don't know which of your activities are your best use of your, your resources? And um, I, I love, for me personally, I love the discipline of return on investment and, you know, when a business is bleeding cash and you can't point to one thing, you need to quickly, you know, literally you need to take a, a Saturday and just say, okay, where are all the pieces? Because right. if you don't know where you're bleeding, how do you know what to fix next? And, exactly. You know, it's, uh, I, I'm a big fan of the, the hospital version of triage you know you you first of all you know wear the life-threatening wounds to the business then you know where the boo-boos we need to bandage you know whereas a lot of entrepreneurs are like i'm just treating everything and you know right. 
wrap it in one big band-aid and hope we covered everything yeah no exactly well you and i were joking before about accountants and and again i'll often have that analogy because i've seen it time again where you know when the accountants are doing their job i mean they, maybe we could argue that some of them could be more proactive but it's the classic three months after year end you know the go to the accountant's office and and then it's like drum roll please Boom, yeah. you made money. Everybody's like, right? But it could have easily been, you lost money and nobody really can explain, well, how did that happen? You know, yeah. and everybody's just like, I don't know. You know, chicken bones didn't come up your way. I'll <laughs> often say to clients, there's no way that if you went to a, a, a publicly traded or a Fortune 5, well, most of them, you know, well-run companies, mm-hmm. they don't have that surprise. They know exactly what's going to happen, you know, within a certain tolerance. Well, I'll, I'll go one better. When I worked at McDonald's in high school, I didn't realize the business education I was getting, but right. we knew our labor numbers every 15 minutes. Yeah. You know, th- th- there's no surprises. You don't get to the end of an eight hour shift and go, you know, our labor was a little high or oops, we were three people short. You know, it was literally every 15 minutes. And the managers were empowered. If if our labor was too high, you'd send people home. If it was right. too low, we'd call begging to bring people in. And that's my challenge for a lot of people is get to know the, the KPIs that make sense. Absolutely. Now, I could talk to you about this all day. And, and of course. I think you and I have had a couple of, well, at least one very lengthy lunch. But um, <laughs> for those watching and listening, you know, I, my assumption is somebody's going to say, I really like that Jeff guy and I want to get to know him. Um, where would they connect with you? Well, okay. So the first thing is my website. So Basecamp4, and that's the numeral4.ca. And on my website at the bottom right hand is all of my social media links. So LinkedIn, Twitter, you know, for now, I guess we'll see. <laughs> Facebook, and I think I'm on Insta. Um, so that's a good place to start. You said we'll put the link to the LinkedIn page. Do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. I think that's, you know, you and I connected through Robert, um, which is a LinkedIn connection, I believe. So, I mean, it's yeah. a powerful tool, even though it's becoming a little Facebooky sometimes, but, you know, still at its core. Uh, the other thing, you can email me directly at uh, jcullen at basecamp4.ca. Love it. Or uh, on the website, people can book me for a 30-minute free uh, discovery conversation. You know, um, so and, that's- and I will just say that Jeff is a great guy to talk to, and he's got a lot oh, of great insights. So um, make sure you take advantage of that 30 minutes. Now, Jeff, you're the expert at what you do, and it would be really oh. arrogant of me to expect that I could ask all the questions. Is there anything I should have asked you that, you know, somebody who needs to work with you needs an answer to, and I haven't asked? Ah, that's a really good question. Um, I think what I have learned and I've seen firsthand is entrepreneurs at some point become the bottleneck to their growth. And I think a lot of them become very confused by this, right? Um, And the reality is businesses, you know, early stage business, it is all about the owner. It's all about the founder. It it really goes and takes off if your idea is good uh, on the basis of their grit and their hard work and their street smarts and 
And there's no doubt about that in my mind, that that's the rocket fuel. But the reality is most businesses are gonna hit a plateau where it just becomes more complex, more complicated, right? It's, uh, we used to draw it with the relationships, right? So as long as the owner can touch everybody around the kitchen table, um, that works fine. Once you get a second layer of people who now are, are one step beyond, you can probably still manage it. Once you start getting into layer after layer, you know, it becomes very, very difficult. And I've had owners say stuff like, I don't understand why nobody respects me. And then you find out, well, you know, I say something like out into the wind and it doesn't get done. And it's like, well, yeah, that worked when it was, you know, five people around the table eye to eye, but now you've got several layers of, you know, who's going to do that? When's it going to be done by? So, you know, we often talk about five pillars of business, right? Marketing and sales, finance and accounting, operations, with all your processes, uh, uh, human resources, and then leadership. And the honest truth is any one of us without a lot of training uh, is probably going to be good at one, maybe two of those things, but we're not going to be good at the other ones. And so when they hit that, when they start hitting that plateau, you know, you got to fill those gaps and whether that becomes learning yourself, which some people manage or hiring the right team or developing the right players on the team to fill those gaps or hiring someone like me to come in and, and, you know, provide some short-term support and then again, build that capacity. Uh, but I think a lot of people miss that reality that what you did early stage to be successful uh, it runs out of gas after a while. Things just become, and it's not because they're not smart or, you know, they're still not super awesome. It's just the reality of the beast becomes more hard to tame. And it's like you said, KPIs, right? Um, I've had owners who used to say, Matt, I knew every job in the shop, you know, when we were small, I knew, and now yeah. I have to ask like 15 questions to figure out what's going on. Well, got a hundred job, you know, projects now and 15 questions. That's just not manageable. It can't be done. I love that. And I think it's, it's clear that you need to learn the next, you know, either you need to learn or you need to hire the person to take you to that next level, because, right. you know, we'll all take an organization to the extent of our skills. And then we need to decide, does it go further, faster, with us at the helm or do we bring somebody else in so right. or maybe sell you know just to, to go back to our our you know maybe that's the optimum time to sell to a strategic buyer because it's it's just a beautiful plum you know hasn't started the wheels haven't started shaking that might be the best time to say i'm gonna cash out and, and um you know go start something else Excellent. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you on behalf of my listeners for being here today. And uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, having more conversations. So thank you for your time today. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, as usual, I always enjoy our chats. So we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. We hope that you enjoyed this episode and we invite you to either click the link below or scan the QR code to register and listen to other episodes of our podcast. Or if you think your business or you would be a great guest to be on our show, we're always looking for experts in one of the nine elements of holistic wellness. We'd love to have you. You can either click the link below or you can scan the QR code and complete our speaker intake form. Thank you and to your wellness.